Welcome to the Hertie School of Governance. The Hertie School. Hertie School. Berlin needs a globally visible public policy school. As a school of governance, we see our mission in fostering these important discussions. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Hertie School of Governance in Berlin. I'm here representing the Governance Post, the school's policy magazine. And uh, today's event, Reward and Punishment Inside China's Social Credit System, is part of the Governance Post event series. Uh, the Governance Post event series supports students in putting on public events, uh, with one taking place every semester. And with that, I would like to welcome our student host tonight, Wiebke Rabe, um, who will now introduce the panel. Thank you. Yeah, good evening, everyone, and thank you very much, Toby, for this introduction and also to the Governance Post to, um, to support this event. It's a great pleasure to see so many faces here. The discussion tonight will be about China's social credit system, and um, I believe that most of you are very familiar with the headlines that we currently see in Western media that uh, portray a picture of China uh, seeking to develop a system that steers the behavior of individuals, organizations, and enterprises uh, through a system based on reward and punishment. Actually, so far, we don't really know a lot about how the system works. There are pilot systems at place, but still very little is known about it. So I'm very happy that we have this panel discussion here today with two experts who will be able to shed lights into many questions that, will, or that are existing about the social credit system. So I would like to introduce um, the two panelists, Professor Genia Koska. Genia Koska is a professor of Chinese studies and Chinese politics at Freie Universität Berlin and also a fellow at the Hertie School of Governance. She's an expert on digital governance and on environmental politics and political economy with her work appearing in leading academic journals. She also consults for international organizations such as the World Bank, Oxfam, the GIZ, and the Asian Development Bank. And uh, pre previously, she was a professor of governance of energy and infrastructure here at the Hertie School, an assistant professor at the Frankfurt School of Finance and Management, and also worked as a strategic management consultant for McKinsey. So thank you, Genia, to be here. And then I would like to introduce also Adam Knight. He is a researcher and a journalist focusing on the intersection between the public and the private actors in the regulation of China's online sphere, so also a very timely topic. And he has uh, featured um, in the BBC, uh, Al Jazeera, The Times, amongst others, holds a BA in Chinese studies and a Master of Science uh, in Science of the Internet, both from the University of Oxford. So thank you very much to be here tonight. The way how we're going to proceed today is that we start with two presentations by both of them. Um, about 20 minutes each presentation, then we will have a short discussion and also open the floor to you, to the audience, to ask questions and receive answers for about 40 minutes. So um, yes, I suggest we start with the first presentation by Adam Knight. And um, yeah, welcome. Okay, thank you very much, Vivke, and thank you all for coming out this evening. Um, hopefully this won't last too much longer than 20 minutes, um, and then once we've heard Guinea's fantastic presentation, I look forward to getting down to some discussion as well. Um, 
I'm going to start today's presentation, and I presume that that's going to work. Yep. Um, with the presumption that most of you here have some kind of preconceived notion of what social credit is in China. We've all seen the headlines, uh, comparisons to Orwell's 1984, to Black Mirror, uh, and it's a narrative of big data meets big brother, a corporatist Chinese state spying on its citizens uh, through two-way telescreens, hoarding vast swathes of data uh, to be algorithmically synthesized into a three-digit score that dictates your place in society. And this is a narrative that has uh, evolved from the purely journalistic space into the mouths of those that actually hold some power in the world. Uh, Vice President Mike Pence last month gave a speech in which he cited uh, social credit as an Orwellian system uh, premised on controlling virtually every facet of human life. Um, most of these um, uh, analyses and these narratives are based on a kind of hackneyed interpretation of individual documents, top-level uh, policy analyses uh, as to what social credit is. Uh, and one document in particular, that is the 2014 planning outline for the construction of a social credit system, or the 2014 plan. This is a kind of macro-level uh, policy on the general direction, the goals of social credit between 2014 and 2020. At the heart of the plan uh, are four kind of general areas of China and Chinese society that the government wants to improve uh, through social credit, commercial sincerity, governmental, judicial, and societal sincerity, as well as four kind of core policy areas uh, that are going to help kind of uh, implement uh, these policies moving forward. Um, since 2014 and the publication of this document, most kind of top-level uh, policy has, been, has revolved around uh, the implementation of social credit infrastructure rather than its actual on-the-ground implementation. Um, for example, in June 2015, an 18-digit unified social credit code was launched uh, as a way of recording data across different uh, government departments. A month later, in July, the National Technical Committee for Standardization of Social Credit Data was launched with 75 founding members, and 29 different regulations were launched within the first year of its existence. And then in October 2015, the National Platform for Sharing Credit Information was launched as a central repository of social credit-related data. Um, since then, 16.5 billion data points have been published uh, through 44 different government departments, 31 provincial governments, and 65 private companies as well. What is less covered, uh, less frequently covered uh, in, in the kind of social credit narrative is the fact that the interpretation and the implementation of these top-level policies uh, has been devolved to individual government departments, individual provinces, localities, cities in China. Um, this delegated model of governance, federalism Chinese style, as you might want to call it, has been central not only to the implementation of policy but also to its innovation. Under this model... Uh, overarching policy roadmaps and targets are set centrally, um, but the methods and mechanisms of implementation are uh, developed and tested locally and in competition with other localities, crucially, uh, before being rolled out on a national level. And this allows for kind of continuous policy flexibility uh, that has been so central to China's exceptional and unconventional style of adaptive governance. This model of localized piloting uh, as a way of incubating, reviewing, uh, and innovating policy has been pivotal to the development of China's nascent social credit system. Indeed, to paraphrase some official rhetoric, um, policymakers in this area have been told first to test and learn, and only then will innovation in social credit burst forth. 
Um, this began uh, in August 2015 when 11 pilot cities were announced uh, for social credit. Eight months later, another 32 cities were announced. Um, and beyond these kind of 43 official model city-level social credit schemes, hundreds of other social credit programs have evolved across the country. At the first summit for the construction of city social credit in July 2017 in Hangzhou, uh, some 653 different social credit initiatives were listed as being in, uh, uh, in kind of curation somewhere across the country. In January of this year, um, the National Development Reform Commission, so the central government, announced a list of 12 model city, city social credit schemes. So those cities that were doing best in the eyes of the central government. And we see a list of them here. And it's through kind of examining these model cities that we can better understand not only how social credit uh, is being implemented on the ground, but also by what standards the central government is currently judging its own success. Um, and attempts to understand the social credit uh, system in this kind of quasi-reverse-engineered manner, that is, through the lens of its local implementation, um, I believe are particularly important uh, given the relative opaqueness uh, of the system at the national level. Um, my research and the rest of this talk is going to focus on one city scheme in particular, and that is Rongcheng, we see at the end of this list. Rongcheng was selected due to its comparative small size uh, for a Chinese city, only about 650,000 uh, um, uh, population, um, and making it comparatively easy from a fieldwork perspective, as well as its very, very well-developed social credit system. Rongcheng is often held up by the central government as being the shining example of social credit uh, on the ground um, as being implemented. My research is based on fieldwork, uh, a couple of months spent out in Rongcheng, interviewing uh, academics, policymakers, government officials, individuals uh, kind of involved in the system on the ground. Uh, and all of this was completed as part of a research project at the University uh, of Oxford. So, without further ado, Rongcheng. Uh, Rongcheng is one of four county-level cities within the wider jurisdiction of Weihai in Shandong province, in the far kind of eastern tip of China. Administratively, it consists of 10 sub-districts, uh, 12 towns, 943 villages, uh, with a combined but shrinking population of 667,000 people. It is home to a thriving kelp industry and serves as the annual wintering grounds for thousands of Siberian whooper swans. It is also home, as I mentioned, to China's most developed uh, social credit system. Um, the Rongcheng social credit system uh, enc uh, encapsulates its entire population of 600 uh, and odd thousand, plus 50,000 businesses and 142 government departments, as well as all of the officials within these departments. Every single one of those entities has a social credit score uh, and rank, which is centrally administered within a credit dossier, or Xinyang Dang A. Um, the Rongcheng social credit system has won praise not only for its scale, uh, but also for its innovation and totality of its citywide push for model status. Since 2014, when it was first launched, the Rongcheng social credit system uh, has uh, encapsulated a whole raft of legislation, dozens if not hundreds of individual policy documents covering a range of different areas. Just like at the national level, the social credit system within Rongcheng operates uh, across a devolved system of innovation and implementation. It is administered at three different levels of government, the municipal level, the departmental level, and the local level. Dozens, if not hundreds, of different uh, social credit systems make up the Rongcheng social credit system, each one functioning independently of each other, but connected through a unifying ideology and a well-developed system of joint incentives, which I'll come on to in a second. 
At the heart of Rongchong's social credit uh, infrastructure sits its social credit management office, um, or the credit office. Again, established in 2014, it's housed in a purpose-built uh, kind of spaceship-looking building that we can see here on the left-hand side, located on Honesty Square, Chongxin Square, about a half-hour walk from the centre of town. Um, the primary function of the credit office is to coordinate social credit legislation, as well as to gather and process social credit-related data. Um, to this end, uh, uh, every individual business and government, government body, as I mentioned before, is assigned a unified score and corresponding rank. And it's the credit office uh, that decides the codification of this scoring and what this means for individuals and legal entities. Businesses, institutions, government departments start uh, this, with their social credit journey with 100 credit points corresponding with an A rating. Um, Gaining points above this brings certain benefits. Falling below 100 uh, and down to 95 will get you a B grade, while fewer than 90 points will trans—oh, sorry, 95 points will translate into a C grade. For individuals in Rongchung, the spectrum is much wider. Uh, you'll start off with 1,000 credit points corresponding with an A grade, uh, going up to a triple A grade if you achieve more than 1,050 points, and falling down to a D grade or blacklisting if you fall below 600 points. I should just point out some of the holiday snaps in the bottom right corner here, which are uh, Chungsin-related or honesty-related propaganda across the uh, Longchang city. Beyond um, uh, beyond these kind of uh, these credit scorings, the credit office since 2016 has published an annual catalogue, uh, a mulu of data categories that should be considered in the calculation of social credit scores. So the most recent edition of this catalogue includes includes a, uh, a broad spectrum of economic and social activities uh, that can either increase or decrease your social credit score. There are 150 uh, behavioural categories that can increase your score and 570 that can decrease it. However, precisely how each of these activities should be quantified, uh, collected, reported, is not, however, decided at the municipal level, but rather is delegated to individual departments, industry bodies, and local administrative organizations. Following the credit office's lead, 42 uh, government departments, uh, ministries, and 20 industry and professional associations have to date issued detailed regulations on the specific ways in which credit points should be accumulated. Um, at the commercial level, many of, these, uh, uh, many of these regulations are about enforcing judicial decisions against the company uh, or reinforcing existing trading standards. Some examples of this in action, um, the Rongchong uh, uh, Social Credit Management Office published, um, uh, published this, uh, these documents detailing 47 different activities for which a business can be docked uh, credit points. Failure to meet building standards, for example, such as inadequate fire safety procedures, um, uh, kind of blocked plumbing, having no recycling uh, facilities in place will see you docked uh, five credit points. Selling fake or poorly tested products will see you minus three credit points. Causing food safety scandal will see you minus ten points. Similarly, the Rongchong Ministry of Human Resources uh, blacklists companies that owe significant salary arrears to their employees, force laborers to work in hot temperatures, employ anybody over the, uh, under the age of 16 and make women who are more than seven months pregnant work as well. While many of these regulations uh, stipulate how credit scores can decrease, there are also various regulations that exist to uh, tell you how your credit score can increase. Um, one example as a company or a government body is that for a, the mere donation of 10,000 renminbi, um, so about 12 or 13,000, uh, sorry, 1,000 or uh, 1,200, 1,300 euros, uh, your, um, uh, your credit score can increase by five points. Um, additionally, for individuals, 
Um, 30 hours of unpaid volunteer work will also see your uh, credit score increase by five points. Uh, this increases to 10 points if you do 60 hours, 15 points for 100 hours, and so on and so forth. Uh, donating blood will also see your credit score increase. Um, beyond simply fleshing out some of the scoring details of the credit office catalogues, some of the departmental social credit schemes I've mentioned have evolved into very, very well-developed systems in their own right. One good example of this is the Rongcheng taxi industry, uh, which falls under the jurisdiction of the Ministry of Transport. Um, the, uh, over the last year or so, a dozen or so regulations covering taxi social credit have been, uh, have been issued with the overall goal of, one, improving industry's reputation, two, reducing complaints and rule violations, and three, enhancing the civilised spirit of drivers. Um, since this has been, uh, been launched, all 205 registered taxi drivers in Rongchang have had a credit dossier opened in their name with passenger complaints and regulatory infringements recorded against the corresponding increase or decrease in their social credit score. So behaviours such as taking unnecessary detours, not picking up your passengers, abusing your passengers verbally, running red lights, drink driving will all result in your score being decreased. Um, in addition to simply ascribing these different credit scores, one of the interesting things about the taxi uh, social credit rating in Rongchang is that there's a degree of peer-to-peer self-regulation as well going on here. So cars are pooled into groups of 10, uh, and within each group of 10, one car is nominated to be part of a so-called honest model taxi team who is responsible for monitoring the behavior of other drivers within that group. Um, this individual uh, will gather the data and gather information on passenger complaints and then submit that to the credit office for further regulation. Um, and once these have been collated on a monthly basis, these scores are converted into a star rating uh, from zero to four that is displayed in LED lights in the front of your taxi uh, uh, when you're driving around town. The system appears to be having some effect. Um, by the Ministry of Transport's own figures, passenger complaints reduced 72% last year, uh, and about 2 million renminbi's worth of lost property have been returned. Um, in July of this year, it was reported that 15 drivers had donated blood in order to increase their score. Um, similar to the devolved manner in which individual government departments uh, are issuing social credit regulations, um, the collection and management of social credit at the local level, at the societal level, the grassroots level, is also delegated down to those individual local administrations. One example of this, a particularly developed example of this, is Gangwan subdistrict or Harbour subdistrict, about 40 kilometres outside of the Rongchong city centre. So the Gangwan uh, subdistrict measures for implementing community credit management elaborate on central policy by uh, listing 11 activities for which an individual can have their social credit score increased and 47 ways in which their score can be decreased. Um, Many of these behaviours revolve around creating a kind of orderly uh, environment, an orderly society within the community. So sweeping away snow, for example, clearing vegetation, uh, we'll see in, you gain one point. Uh, burning rubbish, divvying up your public road, cutting down trees, we'll see you decreased uh, uh, several points as well. Um, additionally, being neighbourly is also compensated in a number of ways. So uh, providing long-term care for an elderly neighbour will see an increase of two points. Starting a community group will be plus 10 points. Um, public quarrelling, a minus 20 points. Blocking public spaces, minus 10. Being drunk and disorderly, minus 5. Um, this isn't restricted to the offline realm either. Spreading rumours and gossip within local WeChat groups will see you find 50 points. Um, beyond these seemingly kind of mundane uh, activities, um, there are also a host of locality-specific uh, ways in which your score can increase and decrease. 
Unsurprisingly, given the rural nature of Gangwon sub-district, many of these revol um, revolve around kind of agricultural affairs. So, for example, drying your grain in public spaces uh, will see you lose five points. Uh, changing your field boundaries will see you lose 10 points. Uh, burning arable land, minus 20 points. Um, these also kind of start to uh, move into the kind of religious as well. Um, so uh, selling, uh, uh, selling objects of superstition, we'll see a 10-point fine. Burning paper offerings or setting off firecrackers at a funeral, minus 20 points. Being a member of a religious cult, we'll see you automatically uh, degraded to a C grade. Um, this also goes into, uh, kind of, you see this kind of start to move into the categorically illegal as well. Um, so not only would you be punished uh, with you know, whatever you would be punished for, for gambling, for example, but you also are docked credit points as well. So minus 20 points for gambling, minus 50 points for having a child outside of the family planning laws, um, minus 50 points for neglecting to look after your parents or neglecting to look after your children, minus 10 points for abusing your dog, um, uh, and perhaps most bizarrely and most gravely, uh, burying a relative in a grave that exceeds the, uh, uh, the restrictions that are placed upon the size of your grave uh, will see you docked 100 points. Um, just as at the, uh, so while Rongchong's kind of multi-leveled social credit system remains significantly fractured with individual departments, industry bodies, local administrations responsible for interpreting uh, central standards and applying them to their own specific jurisdictions, um, there is one unifying thread that permeates the entire scheme, and that is the kind of system of, system of joint rewards and punishments. So following the logic of a kind of national push uh, towards, uh, towards this, the Rongchung system uh, of cross-jurisdictional incentives or joint rewards and punishments um, seeks quite basically to make life convenient for those who maintain a high social credit score and make like, life difficult for those uh, individuals or legal entities whose score falls below a certain level. In essence, the joint system of incentives is about translating a social credit rank or social credit score into practical rewards or punishments, not only within the jurisdiction in which you were originally punished or originally infringed rules, but across the city and across society. Um, coordinated by the Central Credit Office, there are a series of regulations that outline the kind of incentivizations that individual government departments and localities might want to uh, impose on individuals. Um, in Rongchung, the system is known as 1 plus N. 1 refers to centrally administered rewards and punishment, and N refers to the incentives that are offered by devolved departments and local administrations. At the central level, um, there are many ways in which uh, individuals that are blacklisted, so if you are an individual and you have a D grade, or you are a business or uh, entity that has a C grade, um, there are many ways that the central government can punish you. So in addition to kind of public shaming through kind of online blacklists, um, individuals with a credit score lower than uh, 600 points, so a D, uh, will find themselves completely ineligible to receive any kind of government welfare or benefits. They'll be forbidden from taking up public sector employment and be restricted in access to other forms of private finance. Within government, um, party uh, and state employees are disqualified uh, from being considered for promotion if they're ranked B or below. Um, and while not compulsory, there are various pressures on industry now in Rongchang to also start applying uh, these similar uh, restrictions uh, within their own employment practices as well. Beyond the central level, um, and similar to the kind of wider regulations, um, departments have been encouraged to issue their own joint memoranda on how they would interpret uh, social credit scores and how they would punish people accordingly. 
So there have been a series of joint memoranda between different government ministries enforcing rewards and punishments for uh, different individuals and legal entities across different areas. And one example of this is a joint memorandum that was issued by the uh, Ocean and Fisheries Bureau um, in collaboration with 11 other government ministries, um, which sought to uh, infringe restrictions on uh, boat owners who had been blacklisted for activities such as fishing out of season. Um, for example, if they were found guilty of that, they would all then find themselves not able to receive fuel subsidies within another government department or receive government contracts in another area, uh, or even find restrictions on things like sending their children to uh, the best schools within, uh, within Rongchang. <clears throat> These punishments, um, often extensions of existing kind of regulatory practice, however, pale in comparison to the lists of benefits that are open to individuals who maintain a high credit score. Um, the Rongchong Credit Office has promoted a, the creation of a kind of positive uh, uh, affiliation with having a high credit score in an attempt to make credit pay. Um, within this framework, um, government departments and private companies have offered a web of perks open only to high-grading individuals and organizations. Broadly speaking, these fall into two different categories. Soft perks, uh, such as preferential consideration when tendering for contracts, favorable references when applying for university, free vocational training, access to bureaucratic green lanes when applying for government uh, uh, subsidies, as well as hard perks, um, cold hard cash, as well as utility discounts, medical expenses, uh, subsidies to travel, et cetera, et cetera. Taking their lead from the kind of central level policy, uh, there are 85 high level, high credit products that are now being offered in Rongchung by 50 different government departments. Broadly speaking, these fall into five different categories, uh, ranging from access to cheaper finance, uh, cheaper utilities, uh, better access to medical care, uh, free access or discounted access to public services, uh, as well as even cheaper holidaying uh, and access to uh, tourism attractions. Um, at the sub-district level, so at the local level, the village level, um, uh, the benefits of having a high social credit score can be enjoyed in the form of cold hard cash. Uh, there are about 137 villages now that have established funds across the wider Rongchung region, totaling about 1.4 million renminbi, um, to be distributed amongst individuals that have a triple A grade uh, in their social credit score. So in the first half of this year, there were 60 residents in Gushan village, for example, who shared about 10,000 renminbi in cash for having a good social credit score. And in Dongduan village, a small leading group uh, for credit management meets on a quarterly basis to distribute a combined pot of 870,000 renminbi. So how does it all work? Um, the implementation of Rongchang's social credit system has devolved uh, across these do dozens of different government ministries and departments, meaning that the collection and processing of social credit data relies on a vast network of individual actors. Um, at the local level uh, and industry level, hundreds if not thousands of data collection officers, Cai Ji Yuan, are responsible for gathering information on social credit related incidences. Um, these collection officers uh, since last year have been required to sit exams on an annual basis um, uh, based on questions around national, provincial, regional policies as well as the responsibilities associated with this work. The primary role of these collection officers is to collect, verify, and report social credit related data. They're also responsible for handling complaints uh, and appeals uh, as they uh, are mandated to do so. 
Um, uh, they, on a monthly basis, on the 25th of each month, uh, must report uh, the data that they have collected to a central uh, cloud-based file. Uh, although some data, such as volunteer data and the local level data, is only submitted on an annual basis. And these collection officers are held personally responsible uh, for carrying out their duties. Um, individuals who, uh, who submit the data late on a monthly basis will be fined 50 credit points of their personal credit score. Uh, and those at the local level who are found to be misrecording information will also be fined 20 credit points. Once this data has been reported up to the credit office, uh, the office is, set, is responsible for collating these central dossiers, uh, providing access uh, to these uh, to reports, and then reporting that on to the municipal people's government. Um, blacklists are published uh, on a monthly basis, and these lack a kind of standardized uh, format, uh, but sometimes can be quite personal. So uh, pictures, uh, ID card numbers, addresses, phone numbers, names of individuals and companies that have been blacklisted. Um, blacklists and red lists, so red lists being uh, very high-scoring individuals, are also displayed in over 100 different honesty squares across the Rongcheng region. We can see some pictures here of what that looks like. So what effect is it having? Um, raw data is hard to come by, as you might imagine, when it comes to what is actually going on on the ground. Um, there do, however, exist numerous examples in local media that give us some insight into the effects that the system is having. And if we take the kind of four general areas that you might remember mentioning from the 2014 plan, so governmental sincerity, commercial sincerity, judicial, and societal sincerity, uh, we can start to see some of the effects uh, that social credit is having uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. In the interest of time, I won't go through these in any particular detail, but we can see here within governmental sincerity, for example, um, dozens of party employees who have been disbarred from office uh, or have been demoted based on their social credit score um, within commercial sincerity, uh, thousands of individuals who have had credit checks carried out against them when applying finance and discounts applied to their uh, interest rates. Within judicial sincerity, a notable drop in the number of criminal cases, public order offences, uh, as well as the enforcement of judicial decisions. And within societal sincerity, about 6,000 people now in, in Rongchang, so about 1% of the population, uh, have received one of these high credit products I was mentioning before. So they've received some kind of money uh, or financial benefit from, being, uh, from having a high social credit score. Um, anecdotally, however, um, you know, we need to take these numbers with a, with a slight pinch of salt, as with all numbers in China. Um, but it's nonetheless interesting, I think, to, uh, to look at these as, as a way of understanding um, what it is that the Rongcheng government uses as metrics um, uh, to judge its own success. Um, the data in these official press releases tell only half the story, however. Um, anecdotally, the awareness of the intricacies of scoring and its consequences remains very, very low in China. The average person that you speak to uh, on the street in Rongchang um, uh, and asked, you know, do you know what social credit is? Do you know what your score is? Do you know how it can go up and down? Has absolutely no idea um, what it is. Um, this is perhaps unsurprising, I think, for two different reasons. Um, one is that social credit at the moment is only required when you come into contact with the state, um, when you're applying for a loan, when you're seeking promotion, when you're looking for a reference for university. Um, and secondly, uh, that the current distribution of social credit scores is decidedly uneven. So about 90% of Rongchang's residents have an A grade, um, uh, which either implies a very neutrally behaved population, so compliant but not too neighborly, so that their scores aren't going up, um, or that there are still significant gaps uh, in the system and the behavior that's actually being codified and inputted into the system. 
Assuming the latter, uh, social credit uh, for a tool, as a tool for behavioral governance is therefore currently uh, quite limited. Um, this will, however, change over time, I believe, uh, as a critical mass of individuals start to gain awareness of the system and the benefits uh, for, um, from a kind of behavioral nudging uh, perspective start to come into their own. Um, I'm going to skip through this in the interest of time and really kind of wrap it up here, really. Um, just by saying, really, that Rongcheng um, is, I think, an unparalleled opportunity uh, for us to observe the implementation of China's social credit system uh, and its ideology and to better understand how the system works on the ground. And while overall it provides a kind of fascinating snapshot um, it, into this kind of otherwise opaque system, conclusions about what this means for social credit at the national level should really be avoided, I think. Um, I came into this research thinking that this would be a, a nice way of kind of understanding how social credit was going to evolve at the national level. I come out of it thinking that the risks of applying this on the national level and what we've learned from Rongcheng is, uh, is a slightly risky exercise. Um, it's a system that is one particular iteration of social credit. Um, its uh, development has been subject to very regional specificities. It's benefited from the affordances of a very small population and a very active and overzealous local party apparatus. Um, and it's also a city system that is very much in flux. So a lot of the regulations I mentioned earlier are still in trial format, and we have no idea whether these will be actually fully implemented either at the regional, let alone the national level. So how and even whether such local schemes like Rongcheng will actually be integrated or emulated across a wider national system remains very unclear. Um, numerous political, media uh, and industry delegations have, however, in recent months swung by the city to check out what's going on. Uh, Peking University last year opened a research center in the city uh, to monitor progress. What is clear, however, um, is that if implemented fully, uh, social credit and Rongcheng's social credit system in particular will become one of the world's largest social experiments, um, transforming the way in which administrative governance uh, and social management is carried out in China. Um, if even a fraction of what has been started in Rongcheng is transplanted to other localities or scaled up, um, then the impact on issues such as access to justice, uh, accountability in government, social control, uh, will be significant. Uh, research has been pretty limited on this to date, um, and there's a large amount of work uh, that still needs to be done to fully understand uh, the intricacies of this system, I think. Nonetheless, I hope you found this introduction interesting, and I look forward to the discussion in a few minutes' time. Thank you very much. Thank you, Adam, for this uh, great uh, talk. I'm happy to hear that China won't have a blood donation problem because all the taxi drivers seem to donate blood. And thank you, the Hachi School, for organizing this event. And it's important because there are a lot of misperceptions on the social credit system. And the first misperception that we read in the media is that by 2020, China will roll out this system, which is actually not true. If you read actually the documents carefully, it means that by 2020, uh, China is planning to have another plan how to roll it out. So it, there won't be a system by 2020. So for those who are scared, you still have a couple of more years. The second misperception is actually that there are two different systems. 
So Adam just talked about the government-run system, which mainly works via black and red lists. Rongcheng is a little bit of a special case because it's a smaller city and they have some scoring. But when we read about scores, this actually often refers to the commercial systems. And these commercial systems are those by Alibaba or Tencent. And those are the ones where you get one figure, like a 763 score. So it's very important when we talk about social credit, and uh, this is for all the journalists in the room, uh, really to differentiate government and commercial pilots. So without further ado, let me start talking about uh, my research. So the existing research looks a lot on a social credit system as an um, instrument for surveillance or social control. It also looks at it in terms of legal background. And we have now emerging research by Adam and others on studying specific pilots, government or commercial pilots. But no study so far actually simply asks, what do Chinese people think? And how do they respond? So this is a gap I will try to close with my research, or not close, I'm trying to help closing it. A lot uh, needs to be done. So the um, results I'm presenting today are uh, based on an online survey. Uh, this online survey was conducted through mobile phones and uh, desktops. And the participants were selected from a survey panel pool of more than 350,000 um, users that regularly use more than 40,000 uh, apps on their cell phones or online. And from that sample, we sampled 2,209 Chinese citizens, and we made sure they're like representative for China based by sampling on age, region, and gender. But given that this is an online survey, this is, of course, only representative for the internet connection, internet-connected population, uh, but that's still 731 million people. We also conducted interviews, 20 interviews, in uh, cities and also through the telephone. And these interviews are actually very insightful uh, because they provided us additional insights on our survey results. So let me uh, talk about first approval rates and then about actually how Chinese citizens respond. So the first is that participation rate is much higher for the commercial than for the government social credit pilots. So you can see 80% of the respondents are using commercial pilots, and the big ones are uh, Tencent uh, credit and Sesame credit, uh, which is run by Alibaba and financials. When you look now um, at the government pilots, only 7% of the respondents were aware of living in a city where there is a government social credit pilot. And actually, if you see, um, in our all the respondents, 43% actually lived in a city that officially has a government pilot. But only 11% of them were aware that uh, they live in a city with a pilot, which actually means and shows us that these government-run social credit systems are not yet as advanced as often portrayed in the media. And one of the reasons is that many of these pilots actually target at the beginning more businesses, and very few pilots target individuals, because as we just learned from Adam, it's quite a complex system to have collecting officers collecting so much detailed data. 
So what do people actually think about social credit systems? And this was really surprising for us. So 80% of all the respondents either said they somewhat approve or strongly approve social credit systems. So that is really a high approval rate. And that seems surprising. Also, central government is seen as an organization that handles the data most responsibilities. You can see here, 77% said that the central government is most responsible with data handling. Only 8% would say that about private companies. So overall approval rates for government-run uh, social credit systems, it's higher than for commercials. So for example, when asked, in your opinion, who should manage a unified national social credit system once implemented, 59% say it's a central government, and only 2% private enterprises. And again, you can see here, there was an option that a social credit system should not be implemented, and only 1% chose that option. So what this shows is that there's less trust in commercial companies, but more trust in the government in running such a system. Now, we did all these regression analysis, and I won't bore you with all this data uh, in specific, but what we found is that actually the rich and the educated in urban cities really have the highest approval rates of social credit uh, system. And this is really surprising, because if you look at existing studies by Pan and Sue, they find that the wealthy and better educated citizens in China are actually those who prefer democratic institutions and market reform. So why is it then that this group, the wealthy and better educated in urban cities, support the social credit system even though it's potentially influencing their economic, political, and social freedom? Well, that was quite puzzling, and we found two answers. The first very simple, benefits. So the wealthier and better educated uh, have better scores, higher scores, so they have, of course, more benefits from it. Also, the citizens in urban areas are those who have access to a wider range of the benefits offered through especially the commercial systems. So the commercial systems offer benefits like uh, access to um, bike sharing services, hotel checks, hotel check-ins, and so on. And it's actually in rural areas, you really don't have, you don't really need shared biking services, and also you, you have less opportunity to travel. So that's the first reason. The second reason is actually, importantly, about a very different framing and perception of social credit systems in China. So citizens perceive it less as an instrument of surveillance, but more as an instrument to really close institutional and regulatory gaps. So they see it to as an instrument to improve accountability among firms and individuals, also to uh, make sure that companies follow regulations and simply to improve the quality of life. So that's the functions that come up that people mention in interview or in the survey. So it's really seen as an, um, as an instrument to provide additional reliable information in China's society, in a society that really struggles with enforcement of like rules and regulations. So the food safety issues, internet scamming, population is 
like are all issues that have not been addressed over the last 40 years. And so that's how social credit is seen. So it's not an instrument for surveillance, um, because people also said, to be honest, they believe the Communist Party can get any information anyway. And social credit is just one way, and there are much better tools and instruments for the Public Security Bureau to get really data and social control. So that's a little bit the findings from the approval rates. But how do people actually respond? And that's, of course, a very difficult uh, like measurement, how do you measure behavior? And we asked uh, respondents two questions. So the first one was, have you ever changed your behavior in any of the following ways in order to positively influence your score? And they had different options, like for, I changed my shopping behavior, I shared different content online, I volunteered, I donated money, uh, I used more my mobile phone app and uh, others. And as you can see, a lot of people changed their shopping behavior or used more their mobile phone app. And in the interviews, often they measured, said there was a trigger, they needed to get a financial loan. And uh, so that's when they started to really try to really maximize their scores. We also asked, have you ever suppressed your behavior in order to avoid negatively influencing your score? And here, Again, uh, uh, we have different categories, and you can see people share different content online. Some people, or 17% of the people, also unfriended friends on social media, and uh, also 51% uh, adhere to traffic regulations. So these are uh, some of the behaviors we checked in the survey. And to get a bit more uh, understanding of how it works, what we did is uh, did a behavior change index, where we basically added all these uh, 12 options uh, together. And what you can see here is that overall, 94% of the respondents said they have changed at least one behavior. And then we actually looked and saw that, on average, people changed their behavior in three or four categories. So it's not that uh, the systems have a big impact yet. Uh, the changes stay limited in a few areas. And also we saw that those who joined the government-run social credit system changed their behavior slightly more than those who are just part of the commercial ones like Sesame Credit or Tencent. Now looking more at these index, we can also divide it by seeing, so are people more triggered to positively influence their score or to avoid negative implications? Um, so if you here on this side, you see um, all the behavioral changes to avoid negative changes, and on that uh, are positive. And generally, behavior was more towards trying to maximize your score, so to positively influence your score. So a few final thoughts on behavior. Um, so what we saw is that um, people changed their behavior in a limited of areas changing shopping behavior, e-payment uses, online posting, and uh, citizens are steered towards positive encouragement. So the punitive or punishment uh, that are currently in place are limited. And that's partly also because um, previously, for example, the government had some pilots and where they had a lot of punishment elements, the citizens also complained. So the government learned from it and also is trying now to get the buy-in from citizens by emphasizing more the positive elements rather than the 
the negative ones. Um, commercial ones, of course, are mainly only using positive encouragements. Um, so, of course, the limitation is that some citizens are unaware of how they change some behavior. So this uh, is uh, a limitation of the study. And maybe they're also unwilling to disclose some of their behavior. I mean, it's, after all, it was a survey in an authoritarian context. But overall, also the interview showed there are some problems with the current systems. People, when asked how effective do they view it, first of all, there was some de debates whether it really reaches the right people. And uh, the concerns was really is like, uh, basically, if you want to increase trust in society, you want to get the bad apples out. But are you really reaching those who really uh, engage in illegal behavior with the system? And a lot of citizens had some doubts about it. And for example, said, why don't we simply offer better education or work on our legal system instead of creating this parallel system? And that, I thought, was quite interesting. And second, this was also, I mean, at the moment, it works through positive encouragement. And the punishment and punitive elements are not developed. Um, but if they are developed, then actually the approval rates might drop. Right now, no one has a disadvantage from the system. But if really punishments are getting more inbuilt into the system, then we might see a drop. And the second, uh, our regressions also showed approval rates are highly dependent if people perceive the system as fair and transparent. And so this is something that can easily tip, and uh, the future will tell if uh, and how the systems will be built up at the national level. So if you're interested, there are these working papers online on SSRN, uh, one on approval, uh, and the behavior paper will be up in two weeks. Um, so, but just now to sum it up a little bit, just a few quick reflections on the global implications. So the first is really why does the social, the topic of social credit really hits a nerve? Uh, why is it so popular wherever you go? Uh, first, is it maybe it has to do a little bit with China's domestic situation. I mean, China is really seeing a general shrinking space for civil society and freedom of speech. And that, of course, is concerns for many people uh, in, in the world. Second, uh, we already seen from Adam, there's a vast amount of collection of data. And this, of course, will also affect German, European, and other foreign companies who simply operate in China and individuals. And finally, China's push to really use big data and artificial intelligence um, uh, into actually governance processes. I'm just mentioning these 500 smart cities that are ongoing. Um, so this is a really a laboratory for experimentation and really it's uh, the first time that such huge amount of data is getting collected and everyone is interested to see what and can you do actually with this data. There's also the fear that China is exporting its surveillance technologies. And here, really, we see a lot of Chinese firms expanding globally. Um, so state-linked uh, state firms uh, exporting their technologies that can be used uh, also for monitoring citizens. One example that really made a lot of news in the press lately is the Chinese company ZTE that built a mobile phone application in Venezuela. Uh, by, and this is a new 
electronic identity card and that tracks, for example, if a citizen voted or not, or it tracks whether a citizen is present on the social media or not. We also have, for example, the Malaysian police already using Chinese facial recognition technologies. And these are just some examples. So if you look at e-payment systems, e-commerce, and facial recognition, we see now that at the moment, as we speak, China, Chinese firms invest globally. Um, I just tracked the Chinese investments in Southeast Asia together with my students, and we see that China has invested in Thailand, Indonesia, Philippines, Singapore, really exporting their technologies. So that's something to think about. And finally, uh, it's also a mirror, mirror with an R. What happens uh, to here in Germany, Europe, or US? So we individuals feel quite powerless in this new digital area. So we regularly give up our individual uh, pr um, privacy as a necessary precondition to simply participate online in Facebook or Google. We also have more and more pressure to build digital identities and reputation on Twitter, LinkedIn, and so on. We also see more and more firms implementing scoring systems, ratings by Airbnb, Uber, Amazon, are uh, now standard to really uh, rank or assess who is a trustworthy seller or consumer. So these systems are also not as transparent as we want. So if you look at, for example, in Germany, the um, scoring private company Schufer is not really giving out its algorithm of how the scores are completed. And finally, we also have tests with facial recognition cameras in Germany, actually in Berlin, in Südkreuz. Um, so there are tests. So it's not that this is all happening really far away. So given this, uh, I think this could be some explanations why also social credit uh, is so interesting to all of us. So the question is, are there maybe more parallels to China than we realize? And without further ado, I think I'll leave looking forward to our discussion. Yeah. Thank you very much, um, Genia and Adam, for these very interesting insights, once into a very uh, specific pilot project and then also on uh, behavioral change. If there's not one very urgent question, I would like to ask a first question to you, Adam. Yes. Um, yes. You were presenting uh, the specifics, uh, some specific features of Rongchang, a pilot system, what kind of uh, hindrances would you see for a national pilot project, for a national system to emerge? Uh, well, based on the... Is it working? Yes, there we go. Um, I mean, purely from the, on the, from the wrong chunk perspective, usually if you were to roll that out on a national perspective, um, you're going to very quickly hit up against uh, logistical errors, uh, logistical issues. Um, the, the very human nature of social credit in Rongchang is uh, kind of unavoidable. And the idea that even within such a small city of only 600, 700,000 people, uh, you have several thousand people working within uh, the kind of social credit infrastructure. The idea that you could transplant that to a national level uh, is pretty unthinkable, I think. Um, so um, that was a kind of 
my kind of the point I wanted to make right at the end, really, which was that we shouldn't really see Rong Chong as representative of what social credit will look like elsewhere. Um, what social credit will look like elsewhere still remains to be seen. Um, what we are seeing now are increasingly attempts, um, rather than to create a kind of centralized system whereby there's one credit score, one rank uh, that kind of follows everybody around no matter where you go, actually an attempt to start bridging the different local schemes together. So earlier this year, um, the Yangtze River Delta uh, general region, which comprises uh, about four or five different provinces and municipalities, um, announced a joint system of rewards and punishments uh, to be implemented across those different jurisdictions. So actually how you get your particular black or red list or score or whatever is still being decided at that very local level, but that punishment is then being carried across into other areas as well. So it's still a very kind of localized system, but that score is still going to then kind of have implications for elsewhere in the country. Now, of course, what this then means is you're starting to kind of see, and you already see this in Rongchung, and you will increasingly see this elsewhere, is this kind of Kafka-esque bureaucracy being built across the country whereby your uh, your personal uh, rank or blacklisting or whatever is following you around and you're, you're finding yourself hindered in particular areas of the country um, without necessarily knowing where you picked up uh, those particular, um, uh, whether it's points or blacklisting or whatever. Um, so it's it's still very unknown. Um, I think I, what I don't think is we're going to have a, a kind of centralized system. I think that it's going to be, like I said, just connecting up the dots, basically. Yeah, thank you. And Genia, I was uh, I would also like to ask. Um, you were providing a more general context, also embedding the developments within China in terms of more global developments and showing also what kind of other. Um, yeah, um, ranking systems we have here, actually. Do you think we are maybe not concerned enough what is happening here, but looking too much on China, which might actually also distract what is happening here within our own sphere? Yes, thank you, Wiebke. I mean, I think you should look at both systems, and um, I do think we have quite a good debate in Germany about it. Um, for example, we just had the Verbraucherkommission on scoring, and uh, they just published a report. So I think Germany is pretty doing okay with discussing these topics. Of course, we have um, NGOs like Algorithm Watch, uh, and they can do even more to put pressure on Shufa and um, even uh, private companies like Allianz and other actors. Uh, but they're already doing this, so I'm less concerned that we are um, not paying uh, too much attention on it. Um, I mean, I think it's important to get the balance right. Um, of course, there's also opportunities in these technologies. And so it's really a discussion that we need in Germany in terms of are the benefits higher or are the risks higher? And that's uh, where we are at the moment. And it's, uh, we have now a digital rat, digital rat. Uh, and this is what will be uh, dedicated, like we will be discussing this in the next few years. We don't have that in China. I mean. Uh, privacy concerns, NGOs on algorithms are not existing. Um, so it's much harder to have the same um, debate uh, with, uh, with Chinese in China. So I think Germany is doing pretty okay. Can yeah. I just add to that? Sorry. The, um, what, 
social, uh, with, putting it outside the international context and back into the kind of domestic context in China, um, the focus on this kind of Orwellian uh, representation of social credit, I think not only distracts from you know, what's going on here or in the US or what have you, but also distracts from what else is going on in China. And I think this is actually one of the biggest issues with mischaracterizations of what social credit is at the moment. Um, this kind of obsession with painting it in kind of Orwellian terms and seeing it as being something that's much further along its, in its development than it actually is. Um, risks overlooking a lot of what's actually going on on the ground in China. So the Mike Pence speech that I referenced right at the beginning of my talk, um, this was given about a month ago. He gave a whole speech on China uh, and kind of the Trump administration's policy towards China. And it kind of, he kind of goes on this kind of rambling list of things that they have a problem with when it comes to China. And social credit comes pretty high. Uh, and this is like pretty high up the list way ahead of problems going on in Xinjiang, uh, for example, and the internment over a million Uyghurs uh, there. Um, and I think this speaks to, um, like I said, a kind of broader obsession with these kind of quite sexy data-driven topics uh, that actually deflect from, uh, you know, actually a lot of the kind of hardcore stuff that's actually still going on and actually isn't getting enough international pressure and enough pressure within the media. So I think, like I said, that's one of the main issues I have with the way that social credit is currently being um, dealt with uh, within the kind of um, media space particularly. Yeah. yeah, I would like to open the floor to the audience if there are any questions. I think I saw many hands already. One over here, just on the left, the gentleman, is there a microphone? If you could briefly introduce yourself, your name, where you're from, that would be great. Okay, hi, um, I'm Mustafa, I'm from Egypt, uh, living in Berlin. So uh, first is, I'm not surprised actually that the citizens would have such high approval rate of this system. Coming from, from military dictatorship myself, I've seen how people approve military dictatorship if, they, if the media portray it in a in a good format, and when you have total control over the media, this I think happens naturally, and you would expect to see more approval. At least this is my experience. Um, my question is, how do you ensure in your surveys that it's not biased by the fear of speaking truth? Um, yeah, this is my question. <laughs> yeah. No, these are very two good, very good, good questions. So, in terms of um, how do you add the approval rates? I mean, we did in-depth interviews with 20 people, and in the interviews, we kept pressing them, saying, uh, you know, we raised privacy concerns, and then people were like, yeah, that's true, but still, I think it really improves my life quality. And so I think this um, saying, just because it's not discussed, I mean, uh, people do have access to VPN. They also have, uh, you know, some debate, um, uh, about the social credit system. I just think it's really um, not, I think they see it more in practical terms. Yeah, that they have a lot of issues with food safety. So it's very practical now, Shanghai, Honest, Honest Shanghai has apps where the government ranks um, companies and they can just check restaurants, which is clean and which is not. So which company follows food safety regulations. So for people who um, like are pregnant or something, right? They care about which to go to clean restaurants. So that's really a practical view on it. The second question, I think it's uh, much more interesting. So how 
honest is survey responses if it's conducted in an authoritarian context. And this, of course, uh, a lot of researchers, we discuss this, and we have done a lot of comparative work, and it's never perfect. But, I mean, with this case, it's really, the people didn't have to put on their names, right? The only thing you maybe could track is their IP address, but that was even uh, very much hard to track. So we even don't have um, their IP addresses. So they only had to put in, you know, which cities they live, uh, I mean, their income and so on, but no names were given. So you could feel it might be giving people some, like, security. Of course, there's no full security. But then again, these questions were not so sensitive. Um, I mean, we did ask about whether you're a Communist Party member or whether you have confidence in the government. But that's, I mean, uh, the party does allow for some range of criticism. We did not ask in the survey truly critical questions on Xinjiang, right? I mean, also because we worked with a company to help us um, getting the survey through and that company would get also into trouble. Um, but this is still a good question, and that's why we also did interviews, uh, and uh, just to make sure we feel confident. I saw one more question here in the front, second row. Hey, um, hello, my name is Timo Honsel. I work as an ICT consultant for the GIZ, okay. and um, I have a question concerning, um, maybe if you might call it such a way, <clears throat> a dispute resolution um, when there's a conflict between the taxi driver and um, and the and the person who's taking the taxi you already mentioned um, that there's sort of like this peer-to-peer -peer element right how people might rate each other there's also this element of randomness that people are assigned the role of the evaluator um, just overall how decentralized would you describe this mechanism at least in wrong term and um, then do you see an escalation potential there? Um, sort of like um, cultural revolutions that's clearly exaggerated, but that people are checking on each other um, and then, um, yeah, for, for undue reasons, uh, yes. Sure, thanks for your question. Um, so the taxi example is an interesting one because it's the only case that I have heard of anywhere um, that has this kind of peer-to-peer -peer element built into the system, which is one of the main uh, kind of flaws in the characterization of social credit as being something like Black Mirror, uh, which is how you see it a lot uh, being characterized. You know, this idea that you can rate somebody else and that can increase or decrease their score. That doesn't happen generally, except in the case of these taxi, uh, in this taxi industry, which was an interesting uh, example. Dispute resolution is again an interesting thing because technically speaking, in all of the different regulations that exist in Rongchang, there are always one or two clauses, one or two articles somewhere uh, within the regulation that say an individual has to be able to an appeal, uh, has to be able to an appeal a decision. Um, this in practice doesn't seem to be happening. Uh, I didn't come across a single example of this actually happening at all. Um, no cases where an individual appealed uh, either successfully or not. This doesn't mean it doesn't happen, it's just that it's not well publicized um, uh, if it does happen. Um, so in terms of, you know, what does this look like? Uh, like I said, pretty minimal. How does this escalate? Not very much uh, is the answer to that. It's not a very exciting answer, but uh, that's the thing with social credit. I think it's the more you look at it, the less exciting it actually is. <laughs> <laughs> There was one question over there in the back. Yeah. 
Hi, uh, my name is Josh, and I work at the Berlin Social Science Center. Uh, I had uh, a few brief questions from your uh, fascinating presentations. Uh, so the first one, uh, when you sh Adam, when you showed the slide about positive and uh, negative activities, do you see the list of activities as being something dynamic from, let's say, 2014 when the planning outline document was presented to 2018 in terms of have you seen an increase in the range of activities which are covered there? Uh, then um, the second question I had was to understand if there is an exemption list of people who would not be scored within the system in terms of uh, be it members of the Chinese uh, Politburo or if it's Jack Ma himself. Uh, and the last question would be uh, with the aspect of what the future holds. Given that China is also rolling out a massive uh, facial recognition system uh, within the fold of uh, smart cities, and you presented about how they become natural laboratories, would you see the a blend of the social credit system with the facial recognition system to make it even more uh, encompassing of sorts? Thank you. Should I take the first half? Take the second. Um, really good question. Uh, yes, it has evolved over time. Um, to be honest, the, the list of activities uh, and catalogues of activities hasn't changed a huge amount uh, since it started in 2016, actually, in Rongchang was when they first published that. Um, we've had three different iterations of that now. Um, that stays broadly the same. What has changed, however, are the uh, kinds of incentives, the kinds of rewards and punishments that are offered. And that's actually one of the most interesting things I think about so the way social credit has changed just over the last few years. Um, something that really speaks to me in Genia's research, um, it was towards the end, which is the focus on the positives of social credit. And again, this just flies right in the face of this Orwellian kind of characterization of social credit as well. Social credit's not, it's not about the stick, it's much more about the carrot. Uh, it's about how do you incentivize people to actually have a degree of buy-in to the system? How do you get people to kind of, uh, to really kind of get themselves involved in a very positive way? And so what we've seen in Rongcheng and more broadly in June of this year uh, at the latest edition of the Summit for Construction of City Social Credit um, was an announcement of a, uh, a, a scheme called Credit Ease Plus, Xin Yijia, uh, which is a, a raft of, there were five different categories of uh, benefits that should be encouraged uh, through social credit rewards. Rongcheng, never to be outdone by anybody, added another seven categories on top of that. So they had 12 in total. Um, so 12 different ways uh, that uh, individuals should be able to benefit uh, financially or otherwise from social credit. That, I think, has been a real kind of sea change in the way that uh, social credit is seen as a tool for governance. It's not about punishment, it's about reward. Uh, and that, like I said, I think that trend is only going to increase, I think. Yes, and about uh, the second part about facial recognition. I mean, now there are these tests, right, for traffic regulations that um, it's, again, a shaming that is used, right? If you uh, violate cr uh, tree cross-passing, um, you go over the road by the red light, uh, they use facial recognition and f uh, flash your picture on the wall. I mean, that's um, like experiments and, of course, if, I mean, right now, the level of technology in all these pilots is relatively low. I mean, we saw in Rongcheng, it's almost paperwork. Yeah, they're collecting officers who just uh, put virtually by hand a minus 5 and minus 10 into these spreadsheets. But these 
new technologies make it, of course, a much bigger thing, right? Facial um, um, recognitions and other technologies. So yes, I think that could uh, make it uh, a little bit more doable for bigger cities. So the Rongcheng model is definitely not applicable for Shanghai or others. So this will be interesting to watch. There was one question in the back. In the middle, uh, back. Thank you very much for the presentation. I find it very interesting and informative. Uh, my name is Yawan. I'm a visiting student here at Humboldt University and uh, a PhD student in public policy in Canada uh, and from China. Uh, my question is, I wonder if you could introduce a little bit on the interpretations about the motivation of this piece of uh, legislation, like the social credit system. What are the existing interpretation in terms of the central government and the party's motivations? And also, um, this legislation came out in 2014, right? And I wonder if you could introduce a bit on the decision-making and policy formulation behind this, like since when this idea of social credit system started to flow floating around in the central government and who brought it up to the table and how it came out to become legislation in 2014. Thanks. That's a, a very long question. Uh, we will uh, be here for till tomorrow. Yeah. Um, it's a good point though. I mean, um, again, a core kind of mischaracterization of social credit is that this is a new thing. It's not. Uh, social credit has its origins in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, first kind of uh, kind of idea first started being floated about 1989 as part of a broader push towards uh, marketization and the formation of a modern market economy. Um, I think the thing to remember here is that social credit has its origins in credit, financial credit, that is, Zhengxin rather than Chongxin. Uh, so it's this idea that China needed to have some kind of financial credit-giving institution in the same way that any other country does uh, to be able to provide access to financial credit for individuals and companies uh, within a kind of structured and formatted manner. Um, skip 10 years to 1999. Um, uh, this is when the kind of when Zhu Rongji uh, fo first starts to kind of uh, he first commissioned commissioned some research from the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. They commission a survey, various different Latin American and other Asian company, uh, countries to look at uh, credit rating systems. And then in 2002, Jiang Zemin at the 16th Party Congress. That's the first mention we have of social credit at the top level uh, top level government. Um, it obviously then takes a few years before this starts to cotton on, but by kind of 2004, 2005, you're starting to see People's Bank of China forming kind of national credit rating platforms. Uh, it evolves in 2007 to become, uh, there's this kind of, um, it's called the Interministerial Joint Committee of Credit Rating or something like that, um, which is still now uh, the primary uh, kind of uh, body responsible for creating social credit policy. Um, so these things, ha they go back quite a long way. I think what's interesting is social credit as we now understand it, with the emphasis on the social rather than the credit, this idea that behavior has some kind of, you know, social behavior rather than just economic behavior has some kind of input, really dates back to around 2012 in Xi Jinping and a kind of broader moral turn in government in China. So the shift away purely from uh, this kind of financial idea of social credit towards social credit, potentially solving some broader societal issues around honesty, integrity, trustworthiness, etc. 
Um, this is part of a kind of, like I said, a wider uh, shift in Chinese politics at the time. Social credit is just kind of the front line of that in many ways, and it's off the back of that that we then see the 2014 document and all the developments since then as well. Please, over there. Uh, hi, I'm Konstantin Schmitz. I'm an MIA student here at Herdy. Um, I lived in China for a long time, and I also studied sonology, so this topic is um, quite close to my heart. And um, I have a sort of a twofold question. Um, on one hand, we've seen uh, the expansion of Chinese software like uh, WeChat or Alibaba to other countries, um, like Malaysia, for instance. And so because these companies you know, might have a uh, data link, so to speak, to the government. Um, I was just wondering about implications that might have for traveling to China in the future. So could there be like a social credit system for foreigners that already use Chinese technology? Um, and just, you know, I know that's very hypothetical. Um, and the second part of my question is that a couple years back when I was in Beijing, I was talking to a, a couple of friends um, and the issue of reporting, uh, for instance, neighbors or certain things that happen in the community came up, uh, which was not necessarily linked to the social credit system, but just sort of this, um, this already established structure of um, reporting other people um, and how that might in, in the future also be linked, so, sort of like um, more the judicial side of punishment um, and the social credit side of punishment. I, tr I try and you follow up. Um, so yes, so I mean, it ob obviously will affect also foreigners coming into China. I mean, just an anecdotal story. I had a student who just had to appear on court in China as a, just an eyewitness. And he was really surprised. I mean, he was just there for three months over summer. And the court had an entire list of his movements. Yeah, where, which train he took, which hotel he checked in. Because obviously, everything now happens through your ID, even as a foreigner passport. Um, so I think the system gets smarter and will get smarter. So this will have implications also for foreigners. And yeah, so I think that's uh, my uh, main point. Um, uh, this uh, will, but it doesn't mean we don't have this in Germany too, right? So I'm just saying again, uh, there are lots of parallels. And the second question, kind of the link between judicial system and social credit. Um, I think to be honest, that is what social credit is supposed to be. Um, it, it was it's initiated as a as a way of uh, enforcing judicial decisions. Um, so China has historically had this issue with with exactly that enforcing judicial decisions. Zhu Xingnan, uh, this idea that um, it's actually surprisingly difficult um, to make sure that just because you rule that a certain person has to do a certain thing that they actually do it. Um, social credit is an attempt to mitigate that by making sure that you know not only is an individual going to be punished, you know, through legal uh, uh, kind of means, uh, but that also they're going to suffer in their day-to-day -day life as well through a whole host of other different factors as well. Um, we're now seeing that evolve into kind of other areas, kind of general, kind of more moralistic behaviours and what have you. But fundamentally, that's what social credit largely is about. Um, it's like I said judicial rulings and the enforcement thereof. There was one more in the back. Uh, thank you for the input. My name is Theresa. I'm working for the Advisory Council on Global Change. Um, 
I have a question uh, that goes in a similar direction than the smart city question, because I understood from the media that um, oh, you made a very um, strict separation between uh, the commercial credit points and the government credit points. And I, know was, I understood from some studies and media reports that the government is teaming up with uh, Tencent and other big companies uh, to, to, to use the data infrastructure. And so obviously this would make it much easier to, to collect a, a huge amount of data on like online behavior or, um, or um, shopping behavior. Uh, and so I just want to hear uh, your, your opinion on that, whether this is actually happening and whether this data is fed into the system, because then rolling it out on a national level might actually be, be possible before, because the infrastructure is already there. Yeah, you, thank you for raising this point. We haven't talked about it, but this is absolutely correct. So all these new trends means the government can't do many of the things alone. So they really uh, work together with state-owned and private enterprises. I mean, the smart cities are uh, the best example of it. So, for example, Ant Financials has signed contracts with more than 350 cities in China to really cooperate to help cities to really uh, improve their government services. So, for example, in Shenzhen, you can get your pension via um, face recognition. And this all is really as a result of this cooperation, private enterprises with the government. And this raises really important new issues. For example, uh, the government starts to really be reliant on private enterprises. Um, so, for example, sometimes uh, some government officials told me they actually don't really know what these private companies do. They are in charge of cleaning data sets. They're in charge of developing algorithms. And that's the same big issue that at some point the government has uh, lost a little bit oversight. So it will be very interesting to see uh, how these government and private relations evolve over time. What we see already now that the government puts more pressure on the private companies to follow more government interests. So the Sesame credit at the beginning um, it was that if you used Ali, Alipay, which is Alibaba's e-payment services, you were automatically integrated, uh, or Sesame Credit was automatically integrated as a consumer. And then the government didn't like it and really made Ant Financial uh, to make a public statement that they apologized for this uh, privacy um, violation. And now it's no longer that if you are... Um, um, Alipay users that you're automatically also using Sesame Credit. So this just shows a little bit that there is tension between private companies' interests and government interests. But of course, uh, as we just heard about Jack Ma, he's a Communist Party member, and uh, all the private companies are very much um, need to be uh, in, uh, getting on the good side of the government. Um, so. It's, uh, yeah, it's a little bit a unique dynamic that we don't have necessarily in Europe or um, the US, which of course allows the government to do a lot more because they could put pressure on the private companies and state-owned enterprises. So yeah, these new dimensions are very interesting. And uh, we do now a lot of, there's a lot of research happening on smart cities to study exactly this dynamic between companies and the government. We had one more question here in the front. Here in the front, first row. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. My name is Cao Dingchen. I'm from the Free University of Berlin. I have one question to Professor Kostaka. Uh, you, you, have you have mentioned uh, the 
better educated people and the urban citizens have higher approval uh, rate for the social credit system. And your explanation is that uh, they can get more benefits from uh, the SCS. So do you think it's, uh, uh, there can be another explanation? Uh, the urban citizens and the better educated people are, are more aware of the problem of uh, China. Uh, for example, the, the, um, they are more aware of the uh, crisis of social credit. So uh, compared to the ordinary people and the rural, uh, the people living in the rural areas, so they recognize the government's efforts uh, that uh, the social credit system can solve the problem of social credit uh, crisis in China. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, a possible alternative explanation. But I mean, if you look at, we discussed the, the origins of the social credit system. It was a lot that a lot of average people couldn't get social, uh, like uh, couldn't get a, a credit card or couldn't get loans. So, I mean, the rich and the wealthy, they could always get loans and um, um, and credit cards. So, um, so for them, this is not a benefit. Um, and do they worry about the crisis China has? I mean, I think they have more to lose. Yes, they have more wealth to lose. So obviously, they might have a more interest that uh, regulatory um, regulations and laws are enforced. But my hypothesis was really that, um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, they are also more informed about democratic institutions. And all the studies show it's this group in the coastal areas which are rich and educated that are a little bit more pro-market, but also more pro-democratic um, changes. So it seemed uh, to me very surprising that this group has the highest approval rate. I expected more those who benefit from it, like let's say uh, people who couldn't get a credit card now can, that it's the poorer people who actually approve of it more because they might actually finally get a loan. And um, a lot of, yeah, I mean, it's, it makes it easier for people who could never get a loan suddenly use Huawei, right, the Alipay, uh, loan services uh, because you can now get loans very easily um, and that would be more of a benefit to poor people because rich people don't need a quick small loan but we can discuss hmm. I saw one more hand over there Yeah, thank you for your presentation. My name is Tobias. I have two questions. Um, are there any possibilities for businesses or individuals to appeal the um, decisions taken by the social credit system? And the second one is, um, which element of the system do you see most effective for authoritarian regimes to um, suppress um, uprisings? Uh, so, on the appeal front, uh, certainly in Rongchang, uh, this is supposed to happen. I didn't see any instances of it. Um, it's it, this is one of the major flaws with with the social credit system in its current iteration is this is access to justice, uh, basically, and what this actually means for justice um, uh, and for judicial reform uh, more generally. Um, it's as I mentioned before, it's a, it's a, you know you risk this kind of Kafkaesque bureaucracy whereby you're not entirely sure who it is you need to be speaking to to rectify your score or to have it altered or you know who which individual you need to be speaking to. It also opens it up to cheating and gaming as well. The human element uh, is a human element and it's a flaw. Uh, it's um, 
again, I didn't find any cases of this, but it's not difficult to imagine, particularly at the local level, particularly where there are a large amounts of money involved uh, if you have a good score, uh, for the corruption or the coercion of those data collection officers to either improve your score or decrease the scores of those around you. So, um, you know, the, it's a very, very flawed system. On the kind of authoritarian front, uh, I have to push back slightly on the question. I think that uh, social credit is not a um, is not an authoritarian tool. Uh, it's part of a larger war chest, if you want to use that kind of terminology, that the Chinese government has at its disposal. Um, it's a tool for social governance. It's a tool for social organization and management. Um, but if the government wants to suppress an uprising, um, as you said, or uh, to control society in any other way, it has many other better ways of doing that. Uh, it doesn't need to resort to social credit. Um, uh, and actually, this comes back to what we were saying before about this being much more about reward than punishment, uh, because they don't need to punish people through social credit either. They can punish people in lots of other different ways. So, like I said, I have to push back slightly against the question, but it's, uh, like I said, it's, it's not, a, like I said, not an authoritarian tool, I don't think. But that's, uh, let me just add, but I do think it's interesting that it adds a lot of information. And when Xi Jinping came into power, this is when the social credit really took um, speed. And I actually thought Xi Jinping really re-centralized power. Uh, at the same time, he still gets worried because he needs the information from the very local level. And so I think the more information he gets, the more he can govern from afar, yeah, through a very re-centralized matter. And I think this digital technologies, uh, they all provide um, Beijing with very valuable information. Um, not just about individuals, but I mean the social credit system is also um, involves also government officials. It also involves social organizations. So I think this is also a way where uh, Beijing can ensure that they have still access to information. Uh, and this is one of the main worries. Authoritarian dictators have two worries. They fall out among themselves or with the masses. And I think um, the elite struggles we see now in China are quite substantial. And so I think, yeah, Beijing wants to make sure what happens in the provinces is still on track. And I, all these access to information through technologies is a much it's a new way of really govern uh, China. And I think to govern parts of society that are otherwise difficult to govern as well. Um, the bottom of Chinese society, fairly easy to keep kind of down there. The top of Chinese society, also pretty easy, house of cards style, to kind of keep in check. Uh, it's the middle that's quite difficult to kind of keep an eye on. And again, I see social credit as being a, a, an interesting social governance tool for managing the middle class as such, uh, for managing kind of increasing social aspirations uh, and to kind of reach parts of society that otherwise fall outside of the normal day-to-day -day infrastructure of gov governance in China. There was one more question also in the back. And I think this is the last question we have because we are running a little bit out of time. Hi, uh, I'm Raphael from the Trump Chinese AI Association. Um, you mentioned that um, in Rongcheng they, the data collection is quite comprehensive and you also mentioned that uh, there are different data sources are combined. Are there any plans available or what is your perspective on using, besides of the simple rule-based actions, more advanced analytics like, for example, predictive policing or something else? Yeah, uh, not in Rongcheng. 
Uh, Rongchong is a very manual um, uh, example of social credit. It's mostly paper-based. Um, a lot of the data is submitted on a only on a monthly basis. Um, a lot of the data in the local level, so the villages, is only submitted on an annual basis. Um, the, there's no algorithmic weighting. Um, this is not an, uh, a kind of computational exercise. Uh, the only kind of algorithmic weighting is purely in how many points you get or uh, for uh, you know for certain uh, behaviors um, now whether this you know at a kind of larger level uh, that kind of uh, policy will be um, kind of implemented is, is a bit more difficult to kind of hypothesize on um, again I think you're already starting to see this in other areas within Chinese internet governance and internet policy. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if you started to see the same kinds of data being pulled from social credit uh, related sources into those kind of models and those kind of systems. Um, but at the moment, certainly within the wrong term example, it's, it's not happening. Yeah, thank you. I think um, we are now running a little bit out of time. I know there are still a lot of other questions, but you are invited to uh, stay a little bit longer for a glass of wine and some snacks or drinks outside. Uh, I would like to thank a lot, Genia and Adam, for our discussion. I think we have touched upon a lot of different topics and issues um, about China's social credit system, or better say, China's social credit systems, um, which is more a set, yeah, decentralized system consisting of a lot of different government and commercial pilot projects, which um, makes it actually difficult to say that we will have something like one national system in place by 2020, but more something like a next plan or a next step of how to uh, proceed further. So this is a topic that will be, or be remaining, of course, um, very much on the agenda in terms of digital transformation that is going on in China and also in the world. And I would like to thank you and also the communications department of the Hertie School, in particular um, Ashley Bamford, who is over there for organizing this event. And I wish you a nice evening. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. You can find more on our website at herty-school.org.